0: Welcome to Just Curious, we're your hosts, Olivia Messiah and Leilani Fitzpatrick.
1: Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're so excited because we have a very special guest on and we talk about all things COVID, we talk about universities' responses, we talk about the possibility of um, a vaccine, you know, all that sort of stuff um, with someone who is really, really knowledgeable about all this stuff. So yeah, but before we get into that, uh, we do have a few favorites
0: that we want to talk about real quick. Um, So Liv, do you want to start? Yeah, so I'm just gonna keep talking about Game of (laughs) Thrones because that's all I've really been doing. Um, no, but I'm serious. Like, I think when I mentioned it last week or two weeks ago, wow. Um, in our last episode, I just started it, like, just finished the first season. Anyway, now I'm on season four. And I just have to say, everybody out there who hasn't watched it or is thinking about it, but it's like, I'm not sure, do it. You're not going to regret it. The acting is incredible. It's just such a great story. You're going to be hanging on, like at each word they say and like the cliffhangers like every time they end an episode it's like it feels like they're ending it like right in the moment like (laughs) oh it's just you have to watch the next one and the next one and the next one it's just so good so I highly recommend that you guys check it out 10 out of 10 recommend oh my gosh amazing um
1: so once again my recommendation is from my film class because that's basically all I have time to watch or do um but it's this movie that's actually new to Netflix like it came out I think, like, mid-September. It's called The Devil All the Time. Oh, my gosh. It's incredible. Like, I I, I don't even know, like, I don't want to spoil it, but it's about, um, like, it explores themes of, like, evil and, like, religion all in this, like, small town in rural America. It's just so fascinating and so well done. And some people found it slow, but I actually thought that, uh, it really took its time to develop its characters, yeah. which I think is so important in film. So I didn't, I didn't find it to be like, like aching, pain, painfully slow or anything like that. Um, and it has super big names in it. It has Tom Holland. It has Robert Pattinson. Um, it has Bill Skarsgard, um It has like a bunch of people. The only thing I will say though is. They all have, like, country accents because they're in, like, a small town in, like, the South. And Robert Pattinson um, didn't meet with a dialect coach. So that's all I'm no, going to say No, really? About that. Why not? Okay. Yeah. He, like, refused. Okay. It's not, like, the worst okay. thing. That's the only, like, criticism I guess I would have about <laughs> hey, it. He's a Twilight guy, um,
0: right? He is such an oddball. I have like, okay, if you yeah. look up Robert Pattinson like weird moments or like weird quotes the things he <laughs> says are so funny um I can actually like really imagine oh him like not wanting to be with a dialect coach that's really funny
1: yeah and it's just it's so it's so good I honestly didn't think I was gonna like mm-hmm. it but I I love it like so much I think I'm actually um my dad and I are doing a movie night tonight. Oh, love it. It's a Saturday before we're recording, and I was like, we need to watch The Devil all the time. <gasps> so I think I'm going to watch it again. Oh my God, tell me what you think. That's how much I love it. Yeah, okay, it. wait, I want, it's I on, on Netflix? Out, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah. I've, I've heard of it. Like, that sounds so familiar to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to watch. Okay, my next yeah. rec is the Skinny Confidential podcast, which I've already talked about, but can I just say, like, It is the first podcast that got me into podcasting in the first place. Like, the first podcast that I would listen to religiously. And they have, like, over almost 300 episodes out. Like, they've been doing this for five years. And so, like, even if they don't have a new episode out, I just, like, listen to past ones. And they are amazing. They bring in people, like, from all around the world doing, like, the craziest things. Like, the craziest life stories. And just... They bring in so many different perspectives and viewpoints, and I learn something, like, every time I listen to um, wow. an episode. And it's just great. They just had a woman on who was from Romania. I forgot her name. I feel really bad. Um, but it was such an interesting episode. She was talking about what it was like to grow up in Romania during communist rule, and it was just like, oh, like, wow. you just, you click on an episode, and you don't really know what you're getting into, but you know it's going to be interesting. And, um... Lauren and Michael Bostic, um, are a married couple and they do this podcast together and they are just, I love their dynamic and their commentary. Lauren's voice is so soothing and I love Michael. He's so funny. Um, and it's just great, like such a great podcast. And Michael now has a podcast producing company called Dear Media Studios. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. that's Yeah, his? that's his. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And they, um... Oh, no. It's an all, um, all the podcasts that they have are, like, um, women's, um, stories because, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, it's really great. I do think they definitely need more diversity in the types of podcasts they have, but they've been starting to do that now, Mm -hmm. like, um, since COVID and everything. Anyway, I just think it's great, and their podcast is incredible, and I highly recommend.
1: Amazing. I actually only have one more recommendation, um, and I'm sure, like, Many people have seen it already because it's been out for a while. But the social dilemma oh, yeah. documentary on Netflix—I mean, it's all backed out. Oh wow, I can't speak. It's all about the impact of social media, um, the consequences that come with it, like on mental health, um, on society, um, like the spread of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Personally, I will say that I didn't learn that much new information. Mm-hmm. Um, Like, I do think a lot was left off, but I think for people who maybe have never considered it, um, like the impacts of social media or anything like that, it's a really good starting point for conversations. And I think it's, uh, I don't know, I think it was, um, I think it's a good thing. Like, I think it's good that we are learning more about, you know, what this all does to us, like how it rewires our brains and all this sort of stuff. So if you haven't seen it, I recommend watching. Yeah, it.
0: I I remember when it came out, and I really want to watch it. I didn't watch it right away just because I feel like I've like taken a lot of classes just about like the psychology behind like social media and stuff in college. Um, but yeah. I still really want to watch it and see how they put it together. And I think it's really important that people are talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. my next recommendation is kind of like a social media thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but
0: as you guys know, I'm obsessed with Keaton Milburn. And last week, I, whenever I was, like, cleaning or doing anything, I don't even know, like, just to fall to, like, go to bed, I can't talk right now, <laughs> just to <laughs> fall asleep at night, I would, like, play one of her videos before I went to bed. Her vlogs were just so great, like, I don't know how to explain, like, I want to tell you I don't watch any other YouTube or YouTuber at all, like, I feel like YouTube's kind of dying, I don't want to say that, I feel that but... Too, yeah. Um, I don't want to like I go on there so occasionally yeah I don't want to manifest that anyway but I love her <laughs> videos like I don't know what it is it just like she's so calming to me like I just uh I don't know what it is anyway so I highly recommend watching her vlogs they're great like she's just so productive and so positive and she's just so relatable too I don't know and she's, like, she's so inspiring with her brand that she has and like this yeah I was gonna ask sorry yeah sorry. no you're really fine Oh, I was just gonna ask if you've bought. Okay, the, I didn't. Uh, the bloom. collection. Okay, I don't want to like <laughs> put negative energy out there, but I didn't love the bloom collection, so I didn't buy it. No, I I agree. Yeah. But I loved her first one. I really liked her first hoodie. Mm, I like would have yeah. bought that if it hadn't sold out. But she's like talking about. Um, apparently, they're coming up with another drop, and I hope I like it because I will buy it. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, I feel like you need that. Yeah, I need at least one. I've never, like, bought someone's merch, but it doesn't feel like merch to me. It feels like, it's like, I don't know, like, it's, it's like her brand, and, like, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's cute. Anyway. And I <laughs> love wearing sweatshirts and light like, sweatpants, like, and, like, looking cute outside yeah. and, like, cute little fit. Anyway, so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my is that all your... Yeah. Perfect. So, we're yeah, gonna get so... into the episode now. I hope you guys like it. It is such a good episode. If you are just confused about what's going on, want more information about the future of the pandemic and what our lives are gonna look like um, for the next year, next couple of months, I highly recommend listening. We learned so much. It was such a valuable conversation. Um, so yes, without further ado, we are introducing Farley Clegghorn and we hope you enjoy. Hi guys, welcome back. Um, we're so excited to have Farley Clegghorn here on our podcast. He's an international expert who has over 30 years experience in international health development, research and program implementation as an infectious disease thought leader, systems thinker, and epidemiologist with particular focus on HIV AIDS. he currently works at the Palladium Group, an organization that works with governments, businesses and investors to solve the world's most pressing challenges. At Palladium, Farley leads their global health practice, with comp- which compromises an interdisciplinary team in four markets, the US, Europe, the Middle East, and then Australia slash the Pacific. Um, and he focuses on holistic responses to global health priorities based on sustainable health systems, implementation science, health promotion, and prevention. Um, he's had a very distinguished career at the Uni- uh, U.S. National Institutes of Health before serving as a senior scientist and faculty member at the University of Maryland Medical Center. He holds an MD and MPH from John Hawkins University and is trained in internal medicine infectious diseases. Most importantly, he's a beloved family friend, um, and we are so excited to have you here on our podcast.
2: I'm very excited to be here, Olivia. Thank you for asking me.
0: (laughs) So we are going to get into our questions. We have a lot of things that we want to discuss. So Leilani, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So what has
1: been your Primary role as public health specialist and head of Palladium Global Health Practices as it pertains to the COVID 19 pandemic?
2: Sure. Well, Palladium has a long history of working with uh, development agencies and governments and the private sector to address uh, public health priorities and health priorities in general. And so uh, many of the top pressing Uh, global health issues are uh, subject to what we call foreign policy and development uh, through donor programs that our government, meaning the US government, as well as rich governments around the world, they donate monies that uh, address those health priorities. And this is through their foreign assistance programs. So organizations like mine, Palladium, we compete for these uh, funds to assist donor agencies, meaning governments, to address issues like global health in countries that they have a a, a relationship with. And so for the U.S., that pretty much means every country in the world, bar a few, there are only a handful that are off limits. And the agencies in the U.S. government that put out the uh, um, grants and contracts, Include USAID, CDC, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, uh, research organizations, as well as uh, uh, foundations and multilateral institutions. So, Palladium is one of the implementing organizations for all of these agencies. So, we compete with There's a community of organizations like Palladium. You might've heard the term beltway bandit. It's a pejorative term, but it's an entire community of organizations that have grown up in the capitals of the world to assist in global development. Some of them have a specialty like health, and that's certainly what I do, Uh, but there are many, many sectors that are involved, health, (laughs) education, uh, social development, economic growth, agriculture, food security, uh, environment, and natural resources, and the list goes on and on and on. All of these sectors benefit from investment from uh, development agencies.
0: Okay, so with um, the pandemic and COVID-19, um, what has been kind of-
2: Yes, so- Yeah, th- what have you been initially doing? um You have to sort of separate out what we call general development assistance uh, from what's called emergency assistance. So there's been a fair amount of emergency assistance that's being provided. And this usually tends to go through a very specialized group of implementing organizations that do response to emergencies. Palladium is one of those organizations. So we hold large contracts, particularly with the British government, uh, that allow us to say, we can come in and provide emergency assistance, whether it's in uh, drugs and supplies, or medical services, or water and sanitation, you name it, Uh, medical equipment, uh, all of that is grist for the mill. So initially, much of the assistance that comes through development agencies and multilateral organizations is through emergency assistance. And those are through existing mechanisms. That means you have an open contract, additional money will be put into that for coronavirus response. In addition to that, many of the the grants and contracts that organizations like Palladium hold uh, have been repurposed for COVID-19. So essentially the US government or the British government or the Australian government or the World Bank or you name it, if they have existing contracts with organizations like mine, They say, we'll give you additional money to help these countries with these parts of the coronavirus response. Mm -hmm. So that is happening as we speak. And then thirdly, we have what I call specific coronavirus uh, grants and contracts that are currently coming into uh, uh, procurement, and we can compete for those too. There's currently a global coronavirus uh, response ecosystem USAID opportunity that covers the whole globe. And uh, we're all uh, essentially competing to help USAID to do that.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, And professionally, what has been your biggest frustration with how COVID-19 was handled in the United States and then abroad?
2: Yeah. Thanks. Well, there you know, there's a lot written about this. Um, first of all, uh, we we have been planning for pandemics for quite a long time, and we have a pandemic playbook. Uh, we know that the current administration actually didn't think much of the pandemic playbook and, and essentially, you know, gutted it when they came into power. Uh, but there is there is no argument about the science and practice of responding to a pandemic. What there is, is a huge amount of politics involved. Whenever you have a huge amount of politics involved in making decisions about responding to a pandemic or an epidemic, then it tends to skew the response in directions that you don't necessarily want it to go. So when you put the the sort of political, uh, um, um, shall we say, lens On the response. And you also put in the individual behavioral characteristics uh, of people um, in responding to, for example, uh, the most effective way of preventing spread at the moment is what we call non pharmaceutical interventions that is, masking, social distancing, reducing indoor gatherings, essentially, and hygiene. When you put that together, these are behaviors that people need to adopt. And when you politicize the behaviors that people need to adopt, you, you get uh, uh, essentially what we call normative confusion. Uh, people don't quite know what to believe. They ascribe more or less significance to findings. And, and then when you, you uh, couple that with a general uh, sort of lack of awareness of how science and medicine proceeds, so people have difficulty interpreting changes in the medical advice which in fact is normal uh, when you have a big medical issue to contend with it's normal as you learn more to change your guidance so all of this put together means that the us has had a very fragmented response Uh, it's had a lack of leadership that is binding the country together Because essentially, the US is a large country and it can have, we still are in our first wave of the coronavirus epidemic. We are in the second hump and maybe entering a third hump as the virus moves around a large country. And we've seen changes that characterize these movements. Uh, and essentially, we have not been able to get rid of the first wave.
1: So, what would you say to young people who think they're quote-unquote immune
2: to the virus? Well, I'll, I'll first of all put out a couple of facts. One is that we, we've seen changes, as I've said, in the epidemiology of the virus. The, the very first hump of the first wave in New York and the West Coast, uh, essentially, uh, age was a very important factor. That is, more older people became infected early on, and we had a very high death rate. One of the factors that impact young people is they can get the virus and they can transmit the virus. However, they don't Mm -hmm. get sick very often. And so we've seen a huge change uh, since July where more young people are getting the virus and transmitting the virus. And they account now for the majority of the spread uh, in many of the states of the u s and because they don 't get sick, uh, they are there 's fatigue in in the behavioral response in the masking the uh, social distancing, the ability to go out and go to a bar and have drinks with your friends. People want to do that, but in fact it 's contributing to spread to themselves and to the people that they go back to so Uh, you know, for young people in particular, uh, the question is not so much, how do I protect myself? It's how do I protect those around that I love?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Just like I have to say, like being back in college, it's very interesting seeing the different responses people have, the different um, thoughts they have. Because as you said, you know, wearing masks and social distancing, those behaviors have become politicized. And I do have a couple of friends that I haven't been able to hang out with just because I know that they're not taking the virus seriously,
1: yeah. and they're
0: going out regularly. And it's just one of those things where it's like, I want to see you, but you're putting me in harm's way. And so, yeah. you know.
2: You know, Olivia, one of the, the issues that people have difficulty dealing with is when is this all going to end? And, and so fatigue, which is fatigue for the measures that slow transmission, is very evident all over the age spectrum. But I think it's particularly evident for young people because of the loss of what I call control. Um, many young people have been stuck at home for months. Um, there are young adults who may have started college like you guys or about to start college or had their first job or whatever, but they are thrown back uh, into a situation where they have lost control of their lives. And they want to break out of that. So they, they desperately want to go back to a situation where they feel they are in control of their lives. And because of, as I said, this notion that the actual risk from coronavirus for young people is low, that is, the outcomes are not necessarily bad, people want to just forget about it. But we can't forget about it. And a few months is actually not a long time. Um, And we really have to have a plan for how we maintain uh, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions to slow transmission until we have more effective preventive therapies uh, like vaccines and therapies for people who are in hospital. We are still working on those. And, you know, eight months is not a long time.
0: Yeah, it's true. This is a
2: virus that we we did not know before, uh, December 29.
0: Yeah, I know. Um, You know, on a more positive note, when do you think realistically there'll be a vaccine that's accessible to the public? Um, And, you know, when do you think we will go back to normal, um,
2: it's if, the question whatever that looks century. like,
0: I guess. <laughs> I know, right? I'm one of the young people that are like just dying to get out.
2: Um, well, in science, we say, ask the right question. So is that the right question? Can we go back to normal? And, and some people would say, you know, in order to sort of have realistic expectations that we have to define a new norm yeah. uh, hmm. for the foreseeable future. Uh, when will we have a vaccine? Well, first of all, um, you know, I mentioned that the epidemic is changing as we progress. Uh, the fact that there are more young people becoming infected means and the fact that we have more experience in, in dealing with uh, Patients in hospital means uh, death rates are while they are steady. They're actually lower than they were in the first uh, part of the first wave wave so because we can manage mortality better, uh, all eyes are now on how do we find the vaccine? Mm -hmm. And this is a huge global effort, but it is also subject to enormous politicization and we've moved rapidly into a a situation of what I call vaccine nationalism. The US has withdrawn Mm -hmm. from the WHO and therefore, all of the efforts that the WHO, which is really a, a, an organization that brings countries together, it doesn't actually fund or do the response itself, but it provides collaboration. So without the US, which is a huge global player, uh, it has thrown some of those efforts into confusion. And it, it comes across that the US administration is trying desperately to find a vaccine for the American people only. And that Mm -hmm. is something, of course, you can't protect one country and not protect others. Then you have to build a wall around your country. (laughs) Similarly, uh, you can't protect one part of the US and not others, or one group of people and not others. But we know that whether we have an effective vaccine tomorrow or not, we're not going to have enough doses to give everyone the vaccine. So we have to have a system of prioritization that says, who needs it first? And I'm happy to say all of these discussions are going on at the same time that the science is happening to find the vaccine. And what is that science? The science is that you uh, find appropriate, what we call vaccine candidates, and then you test those candidates in a very well-documented system that is progressive called clinical trials. So you move from animal studies into human uh, studies, and you start doing phase one clinical trials, phase two, and phase three. What is phase one? Phase one is about establishing safety. Uh, Is this safe to give to people? Does it have any severe adverse events? And if it doesn't, you move on to phase two. In phase two, you aim to characterize the immunogenicity of the vaccine candidate. What does it actually do in the body that provokes the immune response to coronavirus? That implies that you know enough about the coronavirus immune response to provoke the right one, okay? So we have a fair amount of knowledge there, but it's, it's definitely emerging. And then the final stage is, does the vaccine actually work to prevent coronavirus infection and two, to prevent COVID-19? which is the clinical syndrome associated with the virus. Mm. And so the the phase three trials are going on now. There are at least nine candidates that are in phase three uh, clinical trials. And these are, you give half the people the vaccine candidate, you give half the people what we call a placebo. That is normal saline is a good example of a, uh, a placebo. And then you compare. These people are at risk naturally for becoming infected. Uh, So you compare the two arms of the trial and look at how much protection does uh, this vaccine candidate offer. And you document that there's an entire governance procedure for how you do clinical trials. There are many people who think there's political interference in that process, but frankly, I haven't seen that. Uh, These trials, these nine phase three clinical trials are ongoing. Some are more advanced than others the earliest at which we could expect to see results would be the end of this year. And that would Mm -hmm. be if we had a knock it out of the ballpark candidate. Okay, But if we didn't have a knock it out of the ballpark candidate, we're talking about next spring before we see enough events. We call them events in the clinical trials world. We need enough events to be able to say that we have a robust set of results that would support moving a vaccine into what we call approval and then use. So the way that this works is the FDA is responsible for uh, regulatory approval with the data from the clinical trials. And once you have regulatory approval, you have to move to what we call use approval or general use approval. That comes from a committee at the CDC called ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice. And that uh, committee can make recommendations about who can get it first, who should get it first, and uh, you know provide the guidance that is required. Um, there are many other agencies and organizations that are weighing in on access to a coronavirus vaccine, equity in access, and, of course, cost. Uh, President Trump has said that. All people in the United States should be able to receive this vaccine free of charge. You know, to get to that point, to go from clinical trials to regulatory approval to general use to manufacturing and distribution, normally is a ten-year process. Okay, ten-year right. process that costs almost a billion dollars. <laughs> uh, this is now being contracted into a year or two-long process, and you have to make bets on which vaccines might prove to be uh, protective and start the manufacturing and plans for distribution now. Uh, so, will these bets pay off? Well, obviously, we're hoping so. But there are many issues to resolve that we don't. We have emerging answers for.
1: Interesting, and that we definitely want to come back to the politicization politicization of everything that's happening um yeah. but as you keep saying we're in or the u.s at least is in the first wave as yes. you say and like other countries are in various stages yes. what do you think it will take for us to get to the next wave um yeah. and what is that going to look like or what does yeah. that look like
2: well uh, part of your the response to your question is is one of the artifact of of countries themselves. The US mm-hmm. is a large country of 350-ish million people. Therefore, it's, it's very hard to talk about the US epidemic without going deeper into the data. And so you could say that the, uh, the Northeast of the country, if we think about regions, because this is really how you have to think about it, uh, states are not actual boundaries, and nor are counties, OK? They're, they're artificial boundaries. Mm -hmm. So we had a Northeast and a West Coast epidemic to store it. And you could say that the Northeast and the West went through first wave. They had a sustained reduction and now they could be entering a second wave. If you look at the data for the U S as a whole, we see two humps and maybe a third hump starting right now as the virus and the epidemic moves around the country. So essentially, that's why we must say for the USA as a whole, we have never got past the first wave. Because as a country, we did not have sustained reductions in the number of new cases and in the testing positivity rate uh, to allow us to actually call it a countrywide end of the first wave. So think of it that way. We have a essentially a camelback uh, uh, epidemic curve that has never come down enough to call it a second wave. We still have about 40,000 new infections a day in the USA.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow, so, yeah.
2: I didn't know it was that bad still.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned earlier that th- there's the virus and then there's the COVID-19. So how are those split up? Because in my mind, those are the same thing.
2: They're, um. And they're not. <laughs> They're not. So keep in mind that uh, the the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 is the organism, is the virus that is causing this pandemic. This is the second uh, SARS virus that we have seen in the last 20 years, and the third coronavirus uh, epidemic that we've seen in the last 20 years. So if you think about SARS-1, that, that was a, a limited uh, epidemic that infected less than 10,000 people, but caused a fair amount of mortality at about 30 percent. Then we have, and still have, an epidemic of something called MERS, which is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which emerged in the Arabian uh, Peninsula and is transmitted from camels, most likely. And that's also a coronavirus. In the past, we've known about coronaviruses since 1965, when uh, four coronaviruses were identified as part of what we call the common cold complex, OK? So it's not as if human beings have never seen coronaviruses before. But this virus is novel, meaning that we've never seen it before. It's It's been in some animal species, and we're still not clear which animal species uh, we're talking about. It's entered humans. And the virus itself is transmitted like other viruses that are in this complex of respiratory viruses, it tr- transmits through respiratory and droplet and aerosol contact. Uh, the disease that is caused by coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is called COVID-19. So that has, it, it's just what we call a syndrome. It's defined by signs and symptoms, of one of which is the presence of coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but it, it contains a number of clinical symptoms that you have to check off in order to say this person developed COVID-19. And it's only people who develop severe COVID-19 who die. Although you can go from being mildly affected to being severely affected relatively rapidly for some people. Um, so just think in terms of, you know, there are many analogies you can use here, but uh, HIV is one of them. Uh, You can transmit HIV, you can be HIV infected, but you don't have to have AIDS. You can intervene Mm. medically to prevent the end stage of HIV, which is AIDS.
1: Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, So politics. (laughs) Yeah. How much influence do you think the outcome of this upcoming presidential election is going to have on the future of the pandemic we're in?
2: I think it's it's an enormous potential influence. When I said earlier that our US response has been characterized by a failure of leadership, by the lack of a national coordinated plan, by normative confusion, that is, people don't know what to believe, and by mm-hmm. intense politicization of the messages that are going out to keep people safe, and the, the complete... Uh, uh, you know, you can have two states side by side, both with similar epidemic numbers, and one state is Republican and therefore is uh, resisting uh, uh, control measures, one state's Democrat and is adopting control measures. And these are contiguous states, there's no wall between them. So, so the notion that uh, the political administration of a country severely impacts its response to HIV. I mean, not HIV, coronavirus. <laughs> um, it's also true for HIV, but is, is, is a really robust one. We, we know that if we had better coordination, better planning, better resource targeting, more testing, faster results, uh, more support to healthcare workers and hospitals, if we did all those things, all of which, this administration is claiming. So, so we have this this you know notion of, of alternate realities. I look at the data and I see very clearly that we do not have this under control. The administration looks at the data and they say, "Oh, we we deserve an A plus for our response." These are not compatible points of view because the yeah. data only supports one.
0: Yeah, True. yeah, it's um. It's scary. It's very scary. Um, yeah. Kind of going back to um, just the responses of colleges and universities because... Yes. And, and just schools in general. Like I I was very... I had a lot of perspectives on whether anyone should go back to school. Um And all, I mean, sc- schools, like no one's going to stop school for a year, but it affects young children especially differently. People who are caretakers of those young children. Like there's so many such a domino effect um, if you stop one thing but as it stands today with um, colleges and universities a lot of them are doing kind of a mix of in-person um, remote teaching or completely remote like i'm completely remote but how do you think colleges and universities handle this um what what do you think is the earliest that people should be just fully in person It's kind of a hard question, but I know, um, a broad question, I mean, but I know some colleges had cases spike like this, and then they suspended a bunch of students and, you know, all these students are coming to colleges, you know, again, with different political beliefs, different ideas, and then the colleges have to come up with a standard for, for all these people.
2: It's a great question, and it has many, many answers or many aspects to an answer. I think, first of all, we should separate basic education from higher education right. because the conditions and the participants are quite different. Very young children also can get and transmit uh, a uh, coronavirus, uh, but of course, the whole notion of risk prevention in a young child, whether it's uh, you know K through 12, is very different from how you would manage the same issues in a college-age population or a higher education setting. And keep in mind that both of these settings are examples of what we call institutions. Okay? So there are many, many institutions where masses of people are gathered together. You can take the military as one example, you know, Navy ships, you can take institutionalized elderly, so our entire system of elder care and, um, and um, assisted living. Um, these are all uh, susceptible groups of people to coronavirus transmission and coronavirus disease, COVID-19. As it turns out, age is such an important factor in determining the outcome that one of the reasons that young people desperately want to get past this is they see the risk as relatively low. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at uh, colleges and universities just in the U.S. since July, you'll see that over 90,000 infections have occurred, not only among students, but also among faculty and staff. And, and so once again, the question becomes, is this all about me, the student, or is it about the environment that I'm in and I, the fact that I, we need to protect everyone? So it, it's been a, a bit of a mess, I think, but this is <laughs> yeah. not only in the US, this is everywhere. You have to think in terms of a risk-benefit analysis What is the risk to young people in higher education if they don't go back to class? What are they losing? How are they losing it? And then what are the benefits uh, either for continuing to suspend classes and have remote only versus doing a mix or going back to school? And you can find examples of all of these, and you will find examples of poorly managed responses and well-managed responses. And the trick is to try to get the data fast enough so you can say and make recommendations to all higher ed uh, uh, organizations like yours, uh, this is perhaps what you should be doing. And it has to be aligned with the epidemiology in the setting of the institution. So your institution in New York City has to be aligned with the epidemiology and, of course, the control measures that are happening in New York City. So essentially, I, I would say there is no correct answer here. If you put enough resources into the managing the response, get enough testing going, get results back right away, have enough... Uh, um, implementation of what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions, which are social distancing, masking, uh, avoiding of indoor gatherings, reduced capacity in classrooms. If you put all that together, then each institution has to then manage their way on a day by day basis. And we found that many institutions just don't have the capacity to do that. Mm. You know, it's a huge management burden and suddenly Uh, school administrators are called upon to think like healthcare workers and they're not healthcare workers Mm -hmm. and teachers are being called on to not only teach but to manage the response and to be uh, administrators and at the same time to drive the same content into a classroom online and in print providing materials it's It's a massive set of changes. and so I'm not surprised that we we see uh, results all over the map. We have you know some schools that are saying, Oh, we've got it down, you know I, I know someone at Middlebury, for example, in Vermont. It's a small school, it's rural, um, and they do testing every three days of everyone. so oh. they've gone back to in-person classes, oh wow, okay. but Can you transfer those conditions to New York University? The answer is no. Yeah. So you have to find your own way out of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have been definitely impressed with how New York is, NYU is going about it just because they are following the state and I think Cuomo is great. So, you know, I think it's, it's great there, but, It's hard, right? NYU is such a big school, Elani goes to ASU, right? It's like how, there's no answer, you know? And then it's like the governments of those states have different policies. And as you said, there's no border between states. You know, there's no No. wall.
2: This is a great example of what we refer to in in medicine and sociology as, as the social ecological model. Everyone has their role to play. The individual, the community they're in, in your case, college community, which is in a big city, so that's a wider society. It's how these interact that really determine whether we find our way out of this. Each person and each player in that ecosystem has a role, and they have to interact efficiently and effectively to get out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. We've had such a great conversation today and there are just several questions that we like to ask each of our guests. So this is unrelated to what we've been talking about today, but um, in your lifetime in general, what has been the best piece of advice that you've ever been given or that you've given?
2: Well, I am a scientist, but I'm also a physician and I consider myself a humanist I think the best piece of advice I have ever been given is to get up every morning and work with enthusiasm and energy because that is the way you get out of whatever you're in. That is the way you achieve whatever you set out to achieve. No matter how bad it looks, you get up the next day and you do it all over again with enthusiasm.
0: I love that. that. That's great. I think, yeah, it's right. I, my mom always says, get up, make your bed, start the day right. You know?
2: Yes. Yes. And this so, applies to anyone in any situation. Mm-hmm. When you have some control, when you have no control, when you have a lot of control, if you diligently work, you usually are rewarded.
0: What, um what would you say to young people right now who are, you know, struggling to find their way amidst the COVID um, epidemic, pandemic?
2: Well, I would say to them, time passes at the same rate as it always did. (laughs) And time is our most precious resource. Uh, And it flies by, it seems to fly by, even though I just said it goes at the same rate as it always did. Uh, But as you get older, um, you think it flies by. So when you're in college, it is the most formative, and the most important part of your life. It is where you set the direction for the rest of your life. It is where you acquire your critical thinking skills. It's where you learn to be social. uh, And it's where you acquire some of your humanity. So it is, even in the middle of a pandemic, it is the most amazing time of life embrace it.
1: I love that. so beautiful. (laughs) Um, And for our final question, we want to ask you, what are you most curious about today and why? We can expand on that if that doesn't make sense.
2: (laughs) Well, I think there are many factors that have played into the response to this pandemic that preceded the pandemic. Uh, one of them is how information is shared and how it's, uh, uh, in, incorporated by individuals and by communities. And, and we've seen many, many distortions in that, in the age of social media, many, many distortions. So social media is like this really, you know, multifaceted thing. Some people would say it's a multi-headed monster, um, <laughs> because, There are so many advantages to it. You can't live without it, and it provides many benefits. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, it also skews, sometimes in the most distortionate way, it skews how people respond, how they think, how they acquire information. So to me, this is still a relatively undescribed phenomenon, and I I am interested in, in describing it better. And how it plays out, not just in our lives, our health lives, because coronavirus is seen as a health issue, but it's really a societal issue. And it plays out everywhere. So young people in particular tend not to be as reflective about this um, as when you get older, you know, you have more time and you have more sort of uh, uh, tools to, to think about these issues. When you're young, you're experiencing life. It's all very experiential. Uh, and so you need to, to have allies who are perhaps maybe s- putting time and effort into this issue to help you guys understand what is going on around you. What are the phenomena that are impacting your future and not be sort of passive recipients of that? Mm-hmm. And the very fact that you two are doing this, this, uh, this podcast is, of course, tells me you guys are not passive recipients at all but you need a lot of information to make sense of it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think during these times, especially social media, you know, there's not, I don't know the number, but I was reading an article where we, we see like, we process thousands of things a day, like on our phones, yes. but we're, we're passively like internalizing that information. That we're not actively doing anything about it or s- seeking it, right? It, it just pops up on our screen we see it and we go to the next thing. Then me go, the yeah. go to the next yeah. thing, Then me go to the next thing. And yeah, I think, especially with a pandemic and things like that, it's like, how, where are people getting their information? How are people processing it? You know, yes. what do people believe? Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's been a great yeah, conversation. So informative. I learned a lot. <laughs> me too. Me too. And we hope happy. our yeah, we hope our listeners also take a lot um, of value from this conversation, um, and hopefully, we will all be more active participants um, yeah. in kind of our information.
2: Where we go next? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to coming on again and perhaps updating mm-hmm. what we've just talked about.
0: Yeah, that's great. To great. That. Yeah, and good <laughs> luck to
2: both of you. You're both wonderful examples of engaged young people.
0: Thank
1: you. Thank you so much.